gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Gober, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I know I've been gone for a while. I was gone all last week. I'll tell you more about what I did on my um, winter vacation, uh, maybe later in the week. Uh, but now that I'm tanned, rested, and maybe ready, um, I figured we would counter-program against so much of the uh, the craziness going on right now and go back to uh, one of uh, our mainstays, which is Deep Wonkery. Um, and, uh, what actually I should say in the early days of the remnant, one of the most popular podcasts I did was actually with our next guest because we decided to go do a deep dive on an important public policy issue. So, um, we're going to do it again with the same guy. Uh, so today we've got, uh, Stephen Ide. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of city journal. Um, his, uh, Research focus on social policy uh, issues, particularly homelessness and mentally and the mentally ill. His first book, Homelessness in America, the History and Tragedy of an Intractable Social Problem, was published in June 22. And I should have had him on when the book first came out, uh, but I'm making up for it now. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Stephen Ide um, on Twitter. And uh, Stephen, welcome back to The Remnant. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So again, I, I believe you were on episode seventy the last time you were on, which in in uh, podcast years are like dog years. So that was a very long time ago. So um, why don't we just sort of start with um, that was that was three years ago, something like that. Has homelessness gotten better or worse since then? Well, I think we're still, to some extent, digging ourselves out from the pandemic and the after effects of the pandemic and the policy response to that. If you look at the polls, it appeals to be just as bad as ever, particularly in the crisis places like California. You know, there are the problem cities in America. Most American cities are homelessness is a problem. And then on the coast, it's a crisis. Um, that was in the case in the late 2010s. Um, and it's the case right now um, that it's to some extent hard to understand exactly what's going on in the streets all the time. It changes. It's hard to count. Um, but if you're out in California, if anybody out in California recently, it's just it's easy to strike up a conversation on the state of play with homelessness now as it was back last time I was on The Remnant. One of the reasons why we wanted to have you back on is um, I've sort of I've sort of fell over backwards into this fascination with the city of Portland. And then I got pulled into this long conversation that I've had, or this long interest I've had in the sort of the, the, the transient culture of, um, specifically the Pacific Northwest, you know, going from Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, uh, and Vancouver. Um, and, uh, you pointed out to me that you actually did a history of this in your book about the differences between hobos and um, bums. And what, I'm, I'm using these terms as historical appellations, not as pejorative things. So um, can you just sort of give, like, imagine you're speaking to a freshman class in college and you've been asked to sort of do a history of, of transients and mopers uh, <laughs> vagabonds and whatnot, the shiftless, uh, um, 
What's a, where would you begin? How would you do it? Well, um, I have, have a, my book presents a history of homelessness, which I divide up into three general eras, the Civil War to the Great Depression, the Great Depression to about 1980, and then 1980 to the present. The modern era we're living in now really begins in 1980. The Civil War to the Great Depression era is really the, um, um, the area of the high, in great transience and great movement in the homeless population. That's really the hobo, tramp era. Basically, um, beginning as a result of the, the industrialization and particularly the development of the interstate railroad network. As a result of the railroads, um, huge swaths of the country opened up to agricultural production. You needed lots of people to work that land. Um, and those were the pre-modern homeless who were, um, we of course didn't use the term homeless at the time. Um, uh, and in part, that's because we associated that population more with their um, work habits than their housing situation. Um, very important difference to how we conceive of the problem these days. Um, and there was, it was a larger population than now. And they had this diverse a group of um, terms that they used to describe themselves. Um, hobo, tramp, bum. These are universally regarded as you know things you're not supposed to say these days. We phase them out um, for various reasons. But at the time, they had a spe- specific meanings. Okay. So the hobos, and these are, by the way, these are terms these guys referred to themselves. Okay. They had their own social order, their own customs. It was really like a subculture, like the beats or the, um, the hippies. They had their own music and stuff, um, and their own language, their own terminology. You were a hobo. That meant you moved around and you worked you were a tramp, you moved around, but you didn't really work as much. You got around, got by on your wits. The tramp population was a particular interest to people like Jack London, who took to the road to chronicle these guys and write about they're really fascinated by the tramps. The, the, type, the type of homeless that like intellectuals and you know writers would really gravitate towards. And then you had the bums who didn't move, didn't work. They were sort of like retired, um, older, former hobos and um, broken down as a result of disability, life of manual labor. Um, and um, that was, um, so that was, so social policy p- providers, theorists, economists were really spent a lot of time thinking about this population. Where do they come from? Can we make their lives better? And it's the, the, that, that picture kind of gets a little smaller um, and over time, as America gets settled and we start to kind of live in metros, we're not like you lose your job, you don't like move, you know, hundreds of miles away to find the next one. Agriculture becomes a large, a much smaller share of employment. So basically by the Great Depression, the mid 20th century, the hobos and tramps go away and we're really just left with the bum population, the guys who are just living in these um, skid row districts you know, eking at a living a life, not a living, but a life somehow. And this was a kind of problem that was very familiar to people in the homelessness debate in the early 1980s. They knew what places like the Bowery in New York City were like. And in the early 1980s, when these new groups joined the population, such as the mentally ill, single mothers, there's this intense debate about the new homeless versus the old homeless. And at that time, the old homeless were this kind of bum, vagrant crowd familiar to people in the mid 20th century. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a second. But like, so first of all, it just, I mean, just thinking about it for a second, it seems to me like 
if you think about what American culture was like in, say, immediate pre-Civil and post-Civil War era, there were a lot of Americans who were hardworking, industrious Americans who spent some amount of time, you know, camping, like living outdoors, living, sleeping under the stars. It was not considered the social stigma of not sleeping under a roof maybe wasn't the same, right? And then as you get, as you industrialize, that becomes much more of a tell about your socioeconomic status than it might have, right? I mean, like, I mean, I'm just thinking of like ranchers and cowboys and stuff who would sleep out with the herd. It was not, uh, if you were in the war, you spent four years often sleeping essentially either in a tent or outdoors. Um, and urbanization and, 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 and um, uh, industrialization and the shrinking of agriculture make that lifestyle more of a leisure thing than a lifestyle thing, right? And so it just leaves the, the urban, what we call today homeless or back then bums, they're the only people that a lot of urban people know who are sleeping you know, without a home, because that's, it's just the, the nature of the, the sort of economic environment. Is that about right? I, I think that certainly more people took the, to the road and quote unquote experienced homelessness during that era and now. And yeah, maybe to some extent, because Americans in general were more accustomed to that type of lifestyle, were in a sense more mobile. Um, however, there was a lot of tension between these transient populations back then and the settled population. That certainly comes up. So one of the things, um, you know, getting back to this sort of hobos, tramps, the, the railroad, right in the rails culture kind of thing, is that even 20 years ago, when I first wrote about this stuff, more than 20 years ago now, um, you know, my theory, which I got from my dad, was in part that the reason why, you know, when I started going to the Pacific Northwest, because my wife's from Alaska and we have family in Washington State, and so we were out in that part of the world a lot, and having grown up in New York City in the 70s and 80s, the, the, the sociology of homelessness in the Pacific Northwest is just different than the, the sociology of, of homelessness in New York. Um, it was much more obvious when I was growing up how many of these people were mentally ill. You know, they would, the numbers would skyrocket in the spring when they were no longer in danger of freezing to death. Uh, they, you know, almost were speaking in tongues often. The ones who weren't mentally ill were clearly drug addicted, or at least most of them. Uh, much more diverse, you know, in terms of minority kind of population. Uh, and in the Pacific Northwest, it, is, it was remarkably 20 years ago, and it's remarkably now, how many of them are much more likely to be able-bodied, or at least apparently able-bodied, younger white men, and now women. Um, is there, you know, so part of my explanation was that this was a cultural thing about when you ride the rails, this is the last stop, you get off, end of the line, literally. And so like tramp culture, hobo culture lived on, there was a social acceptance for it that was greater there than there had been, say, in the Midwest. But that can't be the only explanation. Now, I love arguments about cultural lag time, but there have to be some structural institutional reasons that are more important about like San Francisco's mental health policies. So like, how, where, where do you come down on all of that? Well, you know, we over, the weather is an often overlooked yeah. factor in all this. Like people think it's like too simplistic. It's really important. You know, those places out on the West Coast have very large unsheltered population, people on the streets. They're just, these tents are everywhere. Um, New York, where the January temperatures are colder, um, you have this um, smaller street population. 
In New York, it's really concentrated in Manhattan and in the subways. I've also I've always had the impression, it's kind of hard to tease this out of the data, but it's a very strong impression I have from talking to people about what, you know, just what they see. New York, you associate it with more with mental illness, the West Coast with drugs. Um, obviously there are substance abuse, mental ill populations on both both, but you associate it with drugs. And also the sort of like yeah, street kids in their early 20s, um, they're from someone at, somewhere else. They probably have not completely burned all their bridges. Um, maybe like they're from, maybe they could go back to wherever they're from, but for some reason, something is keeping them on the streets of the San Francisco Tenderline, Tenderloin or downtown Portland or wherever. Um, that is a population where you can find some examples of the New York, but it really... Is, seems to be much smaller than on the West Coast cities. I will also say that in the West Coast cities with very large populations, you have different those different populations in different parts of the city. So in LA, the Skid Row neighborhood, which is still a very homeless population, that's where you find the large, which is at this point kind of traditionally African-American homeless population, Whereas in other parts of the city, like Venice, um, which have become more salient and more defining in recent years, you still find black homeless people, but it seems to be more the kind of crusty kind of street kids that are more um, prominent there. It never really occurred to me because when I go home, I I grew up in Manhattan. When I go home to New York, I go to Manhattan, right? Um, And so, you know, the the other boroughs have always seemed like another country to me. Um, uh, and, uh, and it didn't occur to me that homelessness wasn't as much of an issue in the other boroughs. Is it concentrated in Manhattan because the panhandling is better? I mean, is the social services better or is the social tolerance for better? I mean, better in quotation marks there. Um, what, what, what do you think explains why they would cluster in Manhattan? Well, I mean, if we get start, start to indulge in Wonkery, but you said that would be okay. Oh, absolutely. Um, so there, there's the, the way that the government categorizes these things is there are sheltered versus unsheltered homeless people. The unsheltered people are the people who literally sleep on the streets or in a car or in, in the subways. And then the sheltered are in a temporary housing program. New York has the largest homeless population of any city in America because it has this huge sheltered population which is mostly families, single moms with a couple of kids. And they do come from the outer boroughs. They do come from the South Bronx, you know, poor neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Queens. Technically, they're the largest part of the homeless population in New York City. But when you're talking about the hardcore chronic street population who are not families, who are single adults, you find very little of that in the New York metro. Big difference from California, where they're just everywhere. I mean, you're at a Target in Orange County, and there's, you know, it's just, you talk to people who grew up in California, and they, they just see it's like, it used to be consecrated, now it's everywhere. If you're in train stations in Westchester County, or the beaches in Long Island, you don't see any homeless people there. But you do see them in those equivalents of those places in California. It's really concentrated the subway provides um, a degree of warmth. Uh, there are even lines that, because they spend longer times underground in the winter, you find more people on them. 
than lines, which are more the sort of ele- the old elevated system. Certainly, there are a lot of programs concentrated in Manhattan, shelters and so forth. Sometimes the, see- the guy you see out panhandling is not technically unsheltered, as the government would count these things because he slept in a shelter the night before, though he's very troubled, etc., I do think that, uh, you know, there is a sense in which it makes sense to be in a dense populated area because you're more likely to cage some cash or benefits there than often, you know, the North Bronx or something like that. So that must also play a role um, as well. Although some homeless people realize that they're going to attract more attention to themselves if they're in those areas and there will be disruptions, mobility associated with that because um, people can only put up with disorder for so long. Yeah, although it seems like they can put up with it longer than I would have guessed, um, you know, in the abstract. I, so I, I, I actually don't want to get too far ahead without getting a bit sort of breakdown in numbers, but I have to ask a certain question because uh, just for the backstory, um, 30-something years ago, I was a producer of a very wonky TV show called Think Tank with Ben Wattenberg. And we did a special episode on homelessness. And it was a good episode, fine episode. Talked about, whenever I think about it, it reminds me of how intractable this problem really is because the same issues keep coming up. And, uh, and then after the episode, we were, I was talking to Ben, who's the host of the show, and he just all of a sudden yelled, damn it, and kicked himself because he said, I forgot to ask the question he most wanted to ask. And then when I did my homeless episode with you, I did the exact same thing. Um, so the question is, should you give panhandlers, homeless panhandlers money? And I don't mean this as an act of Christian charity. I don't mean like, because if, you've, if you can see into their heart, you know that they're actually truly in need or whatever. And I don't mean it in the Talmudic sense, because somewhere in the Talmud, it says that you should give to beggars, even if they uh, don't really need it because the mere act of begging is so dehumanizing it should offer it should require sympathy of you i just mean as a matter of public policy in the aggregate does it make it better or worse the problem of homelessness i think that when you are talking about people who are living on the street um and unqualified grants of support to them, whether money from someone who passes by, church groups who show up and distribute um, sandwiches, people even give out free tents. Um, That does make it harder for government policymakers to um, um, address the problem, to reduce homelessness, to encourage people to move up in their lives. Um, The more you accommodate street living and giving people no strings attached support is a way of accommodating street living, um, the larger the street population is going to be. I do get a little bit uncomfortable with arguments that say, no, no, don't do that. You should give money to a social service provider. Your money will go a lot farther that way. I mean, social service providers, the money will just wash out. It won't make that much of a difference. So I don't think that that's a persuasive argument. I'm pro-knowledge. I'm pro-people 
the ordinary person having a better understanding of the problem. And such, for example, the idea that the problem is going to require both a redistributionary, but also a rehabilitative solution. So like, you know, maybe volunteering will relieve that sense of guilt you feel, but maybe bring you a little bit closer to the type of rehabilitative type solutions we're going to need. Um, and also just teach you a little bit more about like the kind of mix of problems that are in these people's lives. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think you'd probably agree that, and I agree with your broad point, right? And, and, and you were answering the question I asked, but that said, there are going to be individual circumstances where you're going to see someone, some old lady, right, whose chances of like getting um, their life all that turned around are, are somewhat marginal. And if the, you can see that they're in distress or whatever, helping them is not, a, it, it, it may be at the margins counterproductive to public policy, but at the end of the day, it's probably the right thing to do regardless, or at least it's a defensible thing to do. But some able-bodied young guy um, who's clearly, or at least you have good reason to believe is just going to spend it on drugs or whatever, probably not a good idea. Um, and you can make these judgments and sometimes you'll be wrong, but the stakes are pretty low given that we're talking about pocket change or a dollar or two and not talking about, you know, some huge windfall. That sound about right? Yeah. Relief. The old word for welfare was relief, which right. in some ways I think better captures what's going on with that, whether it's somebody giving out a few bucks or what government does for that reason. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all 
ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so let's 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 pull back um, to the macroscopic for a second. I know that, and I know you get into this in your book, and I know you know this a thousand times better than I do. But one of the thorniest problems, both methodologically and politically, is just counting homeless people. Are we getting better at it? Um, you know, I seem to recall that there's this controversy every now and then about you know the census numbers trying to extrapolate about homeless people and you know, because the incentives are crosswise. The more people you claim to have in your state, in your district, the more federal dollars, more political clout you get. So you kind of, in one, on one hand, government wants a bigger homeless policy. And on the other hand, it's trying to fight homelessness. And um, so like, what is the state of play? What is the best number that we know? Um, and if you can, can you break it down in any way, demographically, by age, whatever, um, or geographically? Um, what is the statistical picture of homelessness in America right now? Yeah, well, our numbers are better than they've ever been um, at any point in the current crisis. One reason is that because we we decided that numbers are important. I think last time we talked about Mitch Snyder, mm-hmm. um, who, who is this um, very colorful, um, influential, also in some ways a tragic figure, activist, homelessness policy in the 1980s. And he gave this famous remark when he was testifying before Congress in the 1980s, that we just we only try to count the size of the homeless population to satisfy our like small little Western minds who need <laughs> numbers. Nobody says that kind of stuff these days. People care about what the numbers are. The street population is counted uh, once a year or every every two years via teams of volunteers that go out and just to places where you're likely to find homeless people and count them. It's not a perfect system, but it's the best best system we've been able to come up with. The total homeless population in America, street, and the people who are in these shelter programs, we don't; those are considered that's considered a, um, accurate. Um, the total homeless population now, right now, we're not really sure because COVID messed so much up our or methods of counting street people, which were already imperfect. Um, but it's somewhere between five hundred fifty and six hundred thousand people. Um, in places like New York, they're mostly in shelter. In places like California, they're mostly um, on the street. Um, California has half of the America's street unsheltered population, mm. though far less than half the nation's population, of course. The people always ask about the mentally ill population, the addicted population. Those qualitative questions are even harder to gauge than the total aggregate numbers. And those we're really getting into. Um, just disputed territory, but certainly when you're talking about the street population in any encampment, well over half the population of adults, um, who must, it's almost all, all the street population are single adults, um, have some sort of um, really debilitating, serious mental illness that's untreated and or a debilitating addiction. You know, these are very unhealthy places where you can't have a community that looks like that. Almost everyone's unemployed. Almost everyone has some sort of like disabling serious mental illness or addiction that just overwhelms their life. 
when you're talking of there are more functional cases, sometimes I like to think of the homeless population as kind of this rule of thirds issue where you have the people who only need a little bit of help and can get like back up into at least the lower income population, maybe the working class. Um, you have the population who are, um, who are very, very uh, chronic, um, who are going to need, like the old woman you referred to, we're just going to have to take care of them for the rest of their lives. They don't have family who can take them in. We're just going to, government's just going to have to do that. And then you have the cases in the middle where the rehabilitative type of solutions are really going to be able to, really going to be need to bring to bear. Maybe they're capable of a lot more, but some of them are in danger of becoming chronic. We want to bring as many of them up as possible into that sort of like upper level, upper third, and maybe a few of them someday into the working class again. So, uh, you know, one of my, one of the the phrases that, um, or the rules that um, I always try to impress upon young people who want to do public policy stuff or politics stuff is this maxim from Seymour Martin Lipset, who said, if you only know one country, you know no countries, right? Because you have to say, on almost every public policy issue, you have to say, compared to who, right? America's number one, compared to who? You know, America's falling behind, compared to who? You know, and I am, I'm, admittedly ignorant on this point. Like, how are other countries doing dealing with homelessness and uh, comparable countries, right? I mean, I, I, Burkina Faso is a fascinating place and it's wonderful, but I don't care what its homelessness policy is. You know, how are other OECD countries dealing with homelessness and do they have comparable problems? And if not, why not? Well, the Lipson point is a fair point, but it's you could go further with that point and say, not only do you need to know what a problem looks like in another country, once you start pulling that thread, you realize that you need to know what every other problem looks mm-hmm. like in other countries. Focusing on the mental illness portion of it, look, if you're talking about a country that's similar to the United States, but that has much more manageable problems with crime and drugs, even if the rate of mental illness is the same in those places, the mentally ill are just not going to like mess up like they do all the time in New York, California. So like, why do we have such a bad problem with untreated serious mental illness in New York City or in America? It's substantially because we have such bad problems with drugs, which mentally ill people use at very high rates, um, and crime, which they're constantly getting involved with. So, you know, you don't want to back into this problem saying like, well, in order to serve this, solve this problem, what we really need to do is solve every other single problem first. Um, but intellectually, that's a lot of time what it um, looks like. You know, play, there, um, the other difference with Europe is that you have more of association with immigrant populations with like the Roma. Um, that's who people see a lot more kind of open panhandling, even like panhandling with kids, which is something that you don't see in America, but is much more common in other parts of the world. Although you do, I have to say, I've seen it in Portland because of that culture. It's very much like a gypsy analog. I say Roma analog um, in some places like Portland, Seattle, where um, I think they're props, but it, and it's, it's not as nearly as, as pervasive. I agree with you entirely as it is in Europe with the Roma, but um, I have seen it on the West Coast. I've not, I don't think I've ever seen it in New York or in Washington, D.C. It's far less common. Um, the child welfare system, as problematic as it is in America, you know, you, situations like that will draw the attention yeah. and it, it, they won't stick around forever. So we have this 
issue in New York City right now with this huge migrant surge, and they're all pouring into the shelter system. Um, but and as a result, New York City has a higher homeless population in its history. But the immigrant population in America, America's very large population of illegal immigrants, we don't tend to associate with homelessness like they do in in Europe. That's a difference. Now, let me think about that for, for just two seconds. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, part of my go-to argument for most of these kinds of issues is the importance of social capital, right? That if you have strong family networks, community networks, uh, people are less likely to fall through the cracks. Um, you know, if, if someone's really bad on their luck, they may stay, you know, in the spare room or in the basement or, you know, something like that, but they have family and people to go to or churches or organizations to take care of them. It seems to me that the illegal immigrants who come into America, the Hispanic and other community, those ethnic communities actually probably have high levels of social capital at the street level to take in people because they themselves have a disproportionate number of immigrants in their own background and sort of understood. I mean, take South Koreans who are not necessarily illegal immigrants, but their ability to absorb newcomers, you know, from sort of chain migration is very, very strong and robust in a lot of places. And you just wouldn't expect um, those kinds of people, those kinds of immigrants to fall through the cracks. But in, in Europe, those kinds of networks may not be the same. I mean, there's still, there's still, it seems to me the issue of mental illness should be roughly distributed the same way in advanced economic societies not counting sort of military PTSD type cases, which are a special circumstance. And drug addiction should generally be distributed somewhat the same way as well. And yet, it, so it doesn't make sense to me necessarily that these differences are simply differences about the kinds of people who are, are homeless. Because I mean, Roma have strong internal social networks. Is it easier to commit people in European countries to uh, mental institutions, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of where this story begins, as you know better than I do, with that, you know, with the deinstitutionalization of, of our mental hospitals. We talked about that quite a bit the last time you were here. Was that a fork in the road where Europe didn't do the same thing? Now, deinstitutionalization definitely came to Europe as well. And, you know, the, 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 the situation in the UK is um, very similar to the legacy of what happened with, you know, shutting down or just dramatically minimizes the old, old asylums. When people look to um, exemplary systems of community-based mental health care, like in Belgium or Trieste, Italy, um, where you just have a really small or essentially no system of psychiatric hospitals. So sometimes people in America will bring up those places. Why can't mm -hmm. we be more like Trieste, Italy? Well, Trieste, Italy is different from America and lots of other places too. I mean, another in the in the drug legalization debate, you know, people will say, "Well, let's look at Portugal. Portugal legalized drugs, and you know, so why can't that should it should work just as well as it does in America?" And the response is, in that culture, there's more social pressure against drug use mm -hmm. that doesn't exist in America. So in, in Portland, it is a great example of where this debate is taking place right now. Where's the social pressure to enter recovery in Portland? It's like, okay, we can make needle exchanges, supervised injection facilities, harm reduction everywhere to, to enable people to survive. Um, but as they're surviving, at what point do we then persuade them to, you know, just get off? And those 
social capital type pressures are more um, existent, the realer um, elsewhere. One place you find an interesting uh, case to examine social capital in the immigrant case and homelessness is in rates of crowding, different cultures' ability to put up with crowded housing. um, New York City, last time I looked at the data, the immigrant population had a higher rate of crowding than um, some native populations, and yet they're not streaming into. So, like, why do people fall into homes as well? They had a housing situation that was um, unsustainable, so they wound up in the streets or shelter. Well, crowded housing is one definition of bad housing. Some people can put up with it, but some better than others. Um, and so um, that's clearly a case where the social capital bonds are stronger. There's not a significant Jewish homeless population, a homeless problem in America, but you know, Jews who made it out of Germany or in, out of Europe in the 1930s and 40s, couches were available to them, right? I mean, it's kind of interesting. We now have massive introduction of Ukrainians across Europe, and I follow this stuff pretty closely. There is not a big homeless Ukrainian problem, right? I mean, so there, I mean, this sort of gets to your larger point about larger social and political context and cultural context matters. You know, the absorption rate for different kinds of people. Um, and, I, and again, I'm not using that in any sort of negative sense. There just are different kinds of categories of people um, who are in different life circumstances and have different cultures um, can explain a lot of these, um, you know, disparities. It wouldn't surprise me if in five years we would see a homeless problem of you know, Ukrainians in some places. But for now, it seems like the absorption rate of, of, of those people is extremely high. And also the, the life, and it's like, it kind of reminds me of, Tom Solo used to make this point that it's, it's not good enough to look at where immigrants come from. You have to look, also look at when they came from there. You know, a Scottish immigrant 150 years ago would come here and be a flinty Adam Smith type, you know, and a Scottish immigrant who comes here today would live in Tacoma Park and have a, in this house, we believe sign on because they've culturally moved very left. Um, There's a, there's a filter bias for the kinds of, immigrants that come to the United States who are contrary to a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric, they're actually not looking to get on welfare. They're looking to like claw their way up, you know, with hard work, you know, disproportionately. And if you have that mindset, you're not going to get, you're less likely to get hooked on drugs. You're less likely to lie around on the street all day. Um, anyway, I have just, I'm just thinking out loud. I, I promise I'll stop now. Um, so, I mean, if, if the European comparisons or the international comparisons are hard um, for all the various and sundry reasons, what's, what cities are doing it well in America and which aren't? And like who, is, is anybody having real success with this problem that's a fair comparison? Um, you know, like I, 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 was remar- I, was, I was really surprised to see how Jackson Hole has, I was in Jackson Hole during the pandemic, and there are basically no homeless people in Jackson Hole that I could see. Um, but there are other very high-end affluent communities that do have homeless people. Weather explains some of it, but some of it has to do with policies. But are there like big, big urban places in America that are just doing much better with the problem? Well, you know how social science journalism works. I mean, there's <laughs> unicorns everywhere. It's like we, yeah. we, somebody discovers a unicorn and everyone, you know, 
latches on, and then eventually the cover coverage finds out that actually it's not a special, or it's just like then we forget that and move on to some other stuff. So in you, everyone's talking about Utah around 2010. Then we realized that that was wasn't what people said it was going to be. Now there's all this talk about Houston. They're the places that never allowed it to become a crisis in the first place. I don't know of any city in America that has allowed its homeless population problem to develop to the magnitude of LA or San Francisco and then got it back under control. Um, I mean, they're just trying to keep things, like what would success look like in San Francisco? It's hard to even you know, know. I mean, even if they reduce the street population by a third, it would still be a terrible problem. I think you can look at individual programs, which may exist anywhere. There may be worthy pro. There can be worthy programs that can be found in in New York and California. Like just because they spend so much money, and there's also a great a degree of philanthropic resources in these places. Um, you know, you can find programs that seem to be very humane that are succeeding to the degree we could realistically expect. But it's it's hard. I mean, it's when you get down to the, this these very low rungs of the social services, it's just you know you have to be very modest in terms of your your definitions of success. I think it may become more of an issue in other cities in America. I don't know how how often how much time you spent recently in like mid sized cities or cities off the coasts, but if you've been to their downtowns recently, they are dead because of remote work. Like Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Atlanta, the site, three cities I've been to recently. Normal weekday, perfect weather. No one is around in those downtowns except the homeless. It's not necessarily, I don't know if the homeless population in those cities have gotten larger recently, but they look to me to be way more noticeable. So there, that, that the issue may be becoming more closely associated with non-coastal communities um, as a result of that. Because if you want to do anything with those downtowns, I mean, they've been trying to revitalize your downtowns forever. Um, but you're going to have to take a closer look at disorder now, I think, than you did back when more people were in the office five days a week. Yeah, I was recently in um, Springfield, Illinois. And the downtown well, you know, I was I, I had to walk a mile and a half to a cigar shop because that's that's the kind of commitment I have to exercise, and um, uh, I walked straight through the heart of downtown Springfield, and I knew there were people in some of these office buildings because I could see you know through the windows and whatnot, but like literally no pedestrians or nearly no pedestrians for a mile except some sketchy ones for the most part, and um, uh, the. And that's my experience in a lot of those kinds of size cities. I, I get your point about um, them being more noticeable in those kinds of places. But if there's no one else down there to notice them, <laughs> um, you have the converse political problem that like you have to have people want to revive the downtowns in the first place um, to, to focus on this kind of thing. I mean, I mean, like... Is there an argument against vagrancy laws, you know, um, a loitering law? You know, like, it seems to me, if you want to revitalize a downtown, particularly a place like Portland, which I, I mean, I, I have to tell you, I was just stunned walking around Portland. And I'd been to Portland three or four years ago, and it's so much worse than I had remembered. And I've been to Seattle and Portland a dozen times over the last 20 years. And, and partly it's because I walked around in the morning where there's no pedestrians and um, except for, you know, sedentary homeless ones. 
You can't revitalize a downtown or any business district if it's legal for people to defecate in the doorway and sleep in the doorway. And um, so I don't like shanty towns. I don't like, you know, sort of like creating ghettos of homeless people, but they're going to be homeless wherever. They don't have necessarily a right to be homeless in places in public parks and that kind of thing. Is there an argument for sort of a Giuliani style, you know, move them to specific places where you can concentrate their social services, sort of, you know, sort of the argument for Amsterdam and, and the wire um, with the added benefit is that you actually make these salvageable middle-class downtown districts livable again. Well, police have to be involved. There has to be a law enforcement response to the, um, to the problem. I know a lot of people in right of center homelessness circles, all of them endorse the idea of some mix of social prog- programs and law enforcement. The question is what that mix should be. One thing that's going on in places like Portland is um, a drawing back on law enforcement on non-homelessness disorder issues. Right. So if you're like not enforcing drug laws, so San Francisco has this big problem in the tenderloin with illegal immigrant drug dealers Endorsed. Like all the drug dealers in the tenderloin are apparently like elite, but Central Americans, right? Honduras, right. yeah. And from the perspective of, you know, San Francisco's legal community, any um, response to drug addiction, any, you know, response to public disorder that results in the deportation of illegal immigrants is a bad homelessness disorder policy. So we can't consider that. So that's so that has nothing to do with like enforcement of sit lie laws or like what we would consider like lower level quality of ordinance that concerns enforcement of other laws because of the big gains, the big passionate criminal justice reform movement. Um, there's a lot of non-enforcement of relatively serious laws that's going on in these places that is making homelessness and, and making disorder worse. Um, I mean, if you could reduce the drug problem among the street population, it would be maybe not, it would be at least a different problem um, and um, wouldn't make it go away, but make it better. Um, the Giuliani quality of life stuff, so the police have to be involved in that respect as well. You know, uh, you can't, I think Californians understand there are some encampments that have grown to be like hundreds of people large. I mean, it's it's be- dispersing it creates problems, but you're going to, I would say it's likely for reasons we touched on earlier, because the incentives do play a role here, it's probably still going to be smaller than if you just allow it to concentrate and grow and attract all types of like non-homeless people, opportunistic drug dealers. It'll be a smaller problem if you disperse it and you enforce, you know, quality of life type ordinances. Um, Local economic policy is a funny thing. It's a question whether or not any mayor could do anything economically that's going to make that much of a difference. But in a social sense, in a kind of civic pride sense, most mayors in America have some face some pressure, some sort of sense of obligation to do something about downtown. Downtown has more important in a civic political sense than most other neighborhoods. I'm expecting that's still going to be the case in the 2020s despite remote work and despite all the things that's, that are going on, like Portland's downtown. Um, and so they can't totally ignore it, even if, yeah, people at downtown law firms are not harassing them as much as they used to. It's hard to just completely giving up, give up on economic policy if you're a mayor, even if you really can't do that much. Um, so they're going to have to figure out, you know, cr- 
my colleagues who are real experts in broken windows policing, people like the late George Kelling, were all into like creative solutions. You know, this doesn't have to be about arrests, but it requires a commitment of law enforcement resources, and it will result in more contact between homeless people and the police if you're going to at least keep disorder within manageable bounds. Yeah, so, I mean, just for level setting, the original Skid Rose, you know, which I think, I mean, I know there's an actual place because Skid Row, but they were like, also just, that was a term for places where... It was like Chinatown or Little Italy. Every yeah. city had a skid row, yeah. And were they the result of police saying, move along, you can't be here? Or was it more like a hobo camp that just sort of set up? It was a push and pull effect. The, the, the pull effect was the very, very cheap housing, which we decided to get rid of for questionable reasons. And then, yeah, there was a, there was, there was a sort of containment type approach. It was understood that you could behave in certain ways in those communities, that you weren't allowed to behave in and outside those bounds. And the police just had more authority. We just, we, people talk about police being out of control. Like they have no idea the types of, the, the amount of discretion, flexibility you could say that police used to have back in the day. They don't have anything like that now. Yeah, and that wasn't all necessarily a good thing, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, there were, you know, the ability for cops to freelance police brutality was on net. There was lots of terrible things about that and lots of crimes were committed by police that, we would condemn today for good reason. At the same time, the ability of cops to just simply solve urban problems without, uh, you know, local discrete problems by just saying, you know, move along or you're going to get hit. There's an upside to that stuff too. Um, you know, it's a very difficult thing to talk about without people saying, oh, you're condoning, you know, police brutality. And I'm not condoning police brutality. I am condoning the idea that police be able to maintain public order. And, um, I do not, I cannot quite get my head around the psychology of many people on the left who I grew up with. You know, I mean, it's a very New York, it's a very West Side sort of attitude of um, thinking that the rights of the larger community mean nothing compared to the individual rights of altered and disturbed people um, to scare kids, to to make playgrounds unusable, to make public spaces unusable. Um, and it seems to me that there is, I keep bringing this up in the context of these urban problems, there's room for some Democrat to sort of be as progressive as imaginable on all sorts of social issues, while at the same time saying, look, you know, crime is a regressive tax on poor people. Homelessness is first and foremost bad for homeless people. Stop turning it into a civil rights issue and start tur turning it into, this is what government is for issue, is to keep people safe and get people better. And it is very strange to me how that's remained so unsaleable um, for in democratic primaries and whatnot. Um, do you, is this a public choice problem? Is it that the, you've basically got regulatory capture by, you know, uh, anti-poverty agencies, social workers, and that kind of thing who actually benefit from the problem and therefore don't like solutions to the problem? Is that too, way too unfair? I tend to think that argument is unfair because, unfair because they, people like that, they couldn't really solve the problem if you force them to it. They're not trying to milk it in that sense. However, they are reluctant to consider alternative approaches 
if you are paying them, you know, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars to pursue a current approach. Um, and it's hard to turn these ships around in the social services when so much money is requiring people to. And also, it just creates generations of expertise, experts, of professionals who've only believed a certain philosophy. Um, how do you create a new kind of cohort of people who look differently when everyone is getting so much money to do things in a certain way? Um California homelessness is weird in a political sense because it's at the top of the polls. It's very easy to find Democrats, you know, Obama, Biden voters who are appalled at the situation in the streets. But it has had essentially no top line political consequences. The Democratic Party throughout the two, the, this, this century has just become more and more powerful in California. The Republicans have become more and more irrelevant Far left progressives have more like practical, um, real political power. All the while, the situation in the streets just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. At some level, it's hard to understand that there are these bursts of sanity. Um, there's moments when there's this drawing back, like the recall of Chesapeake. Um, but in some, but still, like the foundation has shifted. You know, the the the, the baseline has risen. Um, so. Yeah, we're having a debate, um, but we're still having a very different debate than when we were before the problem was much more manageable. All right. So in the time we have left, you know, what's your, um, you know, like, let's say you're put in charge of homelessness policy in, I mean, New York is kind of unfair because it's just such a behemoth. But let's say you're put in charge of a, a typical East Coast um city with a significant homeless problem, what is your sort of basic, I mean, you can make it about New York if you want, since that's your backyard, but um, what's your three-point or five-point or one-point program? You know, what are the reforms that you think would have no silver bullets, just the best chance of improving things significantly at the margins with some populations or with the problem in general? Well, you affirm the role of law enforcement in a social problem like homelessness. There's, you can't accept these arguments that oh, homelessness should be left to the experts and police just know nothing about these problems. I mean, there are these art, people are setting up these programs to have social workers come teach police and de-escalation tactics. We should have more police teaching and social work programs because they know things about these hard cases like untreated serious mental illness that nobody wants to deal with that many social workers, many people in social sciences like don't really engage with. So you affirm that, affirm that it's going to have to be this mix of social programs and law enforcement. It's also going to have to be a mix of redistribution and rehabilitation. In homeless services, there is this dominant philosophy called housing first, which is essentially boils down to you just give people housing. You maximize the amount of subsidized housing that's available. You give people housing, and then you work on whatever other problems they need to work on. Um, this, as a result of this, people in the kind of middle class homeless population who would be capable of more ex-offenders, we really have very little for them within the homeless services system. So um, that really needs to be addressed. We need to have more government support for um, rehabilitative type solutions, non-housing first solutions than we do now, particularly a problem at the federal level. Um, and then lastly, with mental illness, you know, yeah, I think we, the, the pendulum slung way too far with the institutionalization, like um, both in terms of investing more in psychiatric hospital beds. So we have somebody to put, put people when we, who we have the legal authority to commit. And maybe we also need to be looking at uh, modifications to legal restrictions on civil commitment, um, because that is what we're talking about, the, you know, 
of the hardest cases in the homeless populations. And it would be essentially a kind of preventative solution to homelessness to keep people stable before they wind up on the streets at the age of, you know, 40 and 50 and only have like two years left to live, whether they get housing or not. So on the, let's go real quick through some of those. On the, on the involuntary commitment stuff, I mean, I, I remember reading Madness in the Streets, you know, 30 years ago. Um, uh, the standard, at least it used to be in New York, and I believe it still is pretty much everywhere, is that you have to be a harm to yourself or others to be committed, right? What is a reasonable and humane lesser standard that would help in this regard? Like, how would you phrase it? What would be the the justification for for um, committing someone who you're not necessarily sure is going to hurt themselves or or hurt them uh, hurt somebody else, but you think they'd be better off? How would you? What would be the legal standard you would want? Okay, so that's exactly what this debate in the in New York City in late 2020 was about with Mayor Eric Adams trying to um, increase access to psychiatric hospitalization. His legal advisors working with directives from state government said that you can still work within that dangerousness standard, but there has to be some sense in which you don't have to wait until somebody attacks somebody for them to qualify as dangerous. If they are deteriorating in others, they have their problem meeting their living needs, that they're in some way representing a danger to themselves, and thus they qualify for civil commitment. And that's what they've been working on beginning in late November through December. It's still at a modest level. And they're not talking about rounding people up and throwing them in psychiatric hospitals, but they are trying to work with that standard and develop a more just sensible understanding of what dangerousness really means. Because, you know, I mean, you're going to die like decades before a normal American if you just refuse all help and stay living out of the subway. Um, So we need to incorporate that just common sense understanding um, of what we mean by um, dangerousness and and people's tendency to just refuse help in a city like New York, which is just there are psychiatric psychiatrists on every block. I mean, they're just the mental health system gorged with resources. And yet people are dying, you know, with their rights on, as the old phrase says. Um, so we'll see where we get with that. Um, but at least it's probably not getting worse in New York City now than it was. Yeah. And I just find this, the, the political psychology of all this, I just find so fascinating and sometimes incomprehensible. Um, I mean, by way of analogy, the way we're supposed to think about First Amendment rights is we protect really outlandish, fringy things on the presumption that if we protect these things on the outskirts of reasonableness, that the core political freedoms that we cherish and that we consider most viable will be safe, right? Fight these challenges on the frontier, not in your backyard. Um, The same thing with um, uh, vast swaths of of public policy, right? And it's like, you know, the, uh, the Second Amendment. You can think about all sorts of things where we, we try to constrain the limits with the hard cases so that the easy cases are protected. And yet in all of these areas, like with First Amendment law, where we have lots of people who want to censor the press, who want to do all those sorts of things with personal free speech stuff, you know, campaign finance stuff, but don't you dare touch the freedom of expression when it comes to my First Amendment rights, when it comes to porn or stripping or whatever. It's very, it's a very weird sort of turn everything on its head kind of thing. I really can't stand the sort of uh, Zeke Emanuel stuff about how. Uh, the state should, should let people die at 75 because they are no longer useful and they're too expensive. I didn't like all the stuff about nudging people in that Obamacare and all of the rest. Um, 
But like the role of the state, according to any classic political theory, is to protect public order, to protect people from real grievous harm. And the whole point of, the, of progressivism is to sort of tell people what to do for their own good. And they're happy to do it to middle class and upper class people. But the second you start saying they should actually take that, those principles seriously when it comes to homeless people, they're like, oh, no, that's outrageous. That's police state stuff. And I just it's a complete inversion of what the triage on all of these kinds of things or the, the priority set should be on all these things. You know, the founders used to say in, in, uh, in essentials, unity, in everything else, liberty. I think it actually goes back to St. Augustine, but this, how you treat homeless people should be like one of these things that doesn't have a heavy partisan valence to it. And yet it does. Yeah. You know, uh, the mentally ill, for me, it's also a question of like trusting government and how that, you know, how much you're going to trust government manifests itself in different questions or different political contexts. Um, the mentally ill have to be a government responsibility. People with untreated chronic psychosis, like a church, a civic group, their family are not, you're not going to be able to rely on that solution completely you know, for those types. There's going to be a subgroup. And we we knew that back in the 19th century, that's why we built the asylum programs. Um, so, okay, we want to make sure we're not rounding people up. We're not committing people who really aren't dangerous how do we put those safeguards in place? Well, maybe we just make sure that the people we're entrusting with those types of decisions to commit or not commit are humane, educated people, they're certified, and we just trust them because we think they're going to make the best decision, the better decision that anyone else could make. That is not what we do. People in those types of decisions who have to make a decision whether to commit somebody, that, that is, it's highly regulated it's like, you know, the, they bear the burden, you know, guilty until proven innocent. Like we're going to like in, in, in intense oversight to make sure there's no. And if there's the least possibility that somebody is not dangerous, he's got to go get him back on the street. Even though we, we know he's going right back to the subway because that's where he came from. So we just can't we can't keep him because we can't trust hospitals. We can't trust psychiatrists. The risk is too great. It doesn't seem to be, you know, a reasonable definition of trust. From, from my perspective, I mean, I, you know, I know psychiatrists, I know people who've been involved in these decisions. I don't think they're interested in just like rounding up, you know, hundreds of thousands of psychiatric, psychi- psychotic people because they hate them or something or some like quasi eugenics program, something like that. Like there's no one like that in America in these systems who would approach the problem with that degree of inhumanity. I wouldn't go that far because there are always people who can surprise you if given power. But there's a robust system of checks and accountability that, you know, would catch these people before their, their James Bond villain schemes reach fruition. You know, to me, it's just, it's, it's, it's a normal law-abiding person of any race, color, creed, socioeconomic status, who is just living their lives. The state should have very little interaction with them, right? They shouldn't tell them what to do. They shouldn't tell them what to read. They shouldn't tell them what to eat. Um, uh, they shouldn't tell them what pronouns to use. Just leave them alone, right? Let people live their lives. But people in really intense distress and extreme vulnerability, that's where the argument for government intervention gets stronger. It's, and I'm a federalist, so it gets strongest at the local level. But again, we've inverted the pyramid on our priorities on this stuff. And I just think it's, it's a sign of how homeless people become sort of a prop for larger narratives. I do, speaking of larger narratives, you made, re- you made oblique reference to this if I remember correctly, the 
the Madness in the Street books by, was it Rail Gene Isaac and somebody else? They made a big deal about Thomas Saz and the, the sort of this weird libertarian convergence that the argument was, was that the Soviet Union put people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn in mental institutions because political dissidence was deemed to be mentally ill. And so therefore, through the transit of property, the people we put in mental institutions must be political dissidents too, and there's really nothing wrong with them, and had elements of like Foucault and all this kind of stuff. Does that argument still exist, or is a lot, are a lot of these problems that we have because of that bad argument being turned into law, and we now don't have the political will to, un- uh, to dismantle it? I think there's more radical arguments. He says most familiar with the phrase mental illness is a myth. Um, the the uh, Artie Lang, Foucault, you're really talking about a 60s cohort. Um, and they certainly had a lot, They did their ideas did have big practical influence, particularly in the legal community, who are the people who built the current you know, regulations and law in the 1970s, following those theories. I think there's been a bit of drawing back from that. I don't think you find as many radical ideas, idea that schizophrenia is just a lifestyle choice, particularly because they have, we have such a large uh, mentally ill population in the jails and prisons because we took them out of the hospitals in large measure. Um, and also and also homelessness. I think homelessness, which, you know, led to more ordinary Americans just daily encounter with people with untreated schizophrenia, um, those types of ideas just don't resonate with those people. Um, and so they've become actually, I think, less persuasive um, over the decades, although the situation with the mentally ill has not gotten really much better as a result of, even though our thinking is probably a little bit saner than it was in the heady days of radical antipsychiatry. But is the, I mean, but part of the argument was is that the anti-psychiatry movement of, took advantage of that moment, you know, the Geraldo Rivera revelations about some pretty horrible conditions in some mental institutions and, um, uh, and leveraged it into policy changes. It's one thing to say, you know, it's sort of, it, to me, it's very analogous to eugenics. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of things on the books for a very long time that have their roots in eugenics, starting with like the minimum wage. Uh, or maybe not starting with it, but including the minimum wage. And um, people have generally moved on from eugenics, but a lot of those laws that have eugenic roots um, or roots in the eugenics movement are still around. Um, and so the question is, is like, did the anti-psychiatry movement actually have meaning? Are the, is the inability to commit people a success that can be attributed to the anti-psychiatry movement? And there's just, and now because of sort of demosclerosis or path dependency or public choice or, or just the intractableness of the political issues involved, they're impossible to reverse? Or, or is this not something that we can lay at the feet of the anti-psychiatry movement? The institutionalization had a few causes. It wasn't just that one. Another thing that was going on is changes within the psychiatric profession. Psychiatrists, there was this merging of mainstream health and mental health. They used to be very different systems. Um, And psychiatrists became very embarrassed about how few people they were making better in these asylums. They were staying there forever. That doesn't look like real medicine. We want to be real doctors. What does that mean? And so, um, and this is also when, um, you know, the 
emergence of the worried well, normalization of therapy, the Freudian heyday. So psychiatry is very different now, and psychiatry is not going to endorse a big mass institutionalization because psychiatrists rightly don't see that as looking like healthcare. Um, you know, people do people have to go to hospitals? Yes, but they go to hospitals to get fixed, and then they and they leave, quickly leave hospital. Mental illness is probably more different than people are willing to admit, but it needs to be as close as possible to physical illness and the way we treat it, um, you know, with medications and with, you know, integration um, as the goal. Um, And so that also plays a big role in keeping a cap on how far we're going to go in terms of putting people into psychiatric hospitals uh, and why it declined in the first place. So I know I said we were about to wrap up, but just one, one last question, unless it sparks another question. Um, moderator or host's privilege. So we talked a lot about the mental health stuff, which I actually think is the more important part because it you can argue about deserve and who deserves to be homeless or, or, or victims. And I mean, we can have all sorts of arguments about assigning morality. And the simple fact is, is that the morality is much clearer and more obvious when you're talking about people who are mentally ill. Um, and the obligations for the state to do something are just clearer, more obvious when you're talking about people who are mentally ill. Um, but where do you know when I'm sure because you have to travel in these circles and debate in these circles. What do you say to people who say, well, homelessness is really just a function of late capitalism and it's these are the lumpen proletariat or whatever. This is a surplus labor um, and uh, the problem is capitalism not these discrete public policy questions. And, you know, you're, the, the fact that we can't point to similar homeless populations in Europe, I think probably feeds that argument for a lot of people. Um, so, like, what is your standard response to that? Well, we can get into, you know, housing dynamics and stuff like that, but I think the history is really helpful here because, like, why is it so different? Okay, leaving aside whether or not it's a bigger problem than before, why, is, why were there so fewer mentally ill people in the hobo-tramp population? We, there were people doing serious social science research. Psychotic people just didn't seem to pop up like they do all the time now. It was a much wider population. Black homelessness is a post-1980s phenomenon, mostly. Um, it was disproportionately white, actually. You know, is late capitalism account for that? I mean, you really have to get the the, the almost like the you know plus ninety percent plus association between family homelessness and single parent families. There were never homeless families before, you know, the late twentieth century. It's just more complicated. And those threads to entangle all of them, you got to get into more than what those types of theorists are interested in getting into. Yeah, I mean that gets you into a very nineteen eighty style argument about blaming victims. But, you know, and gets you into, again, where we started, which is that complicated social phenomena have complicated causes, right? I mean, that's sort of where we are. Um, all right, Steve and I, thank you so much for doing this. I promise it won't be this long to have you back. Um, really appreciate it. And again, for those who want to check it out, uh, you can read him in the City Journal and his uh, first book, Homelessness in America, The History and Tragedy of an Intractable Social Problem. Um, is available everywhere that sells fine books. Thank you, Steve and I. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so that uh, podcast was like uh, the old Palm Olive ad. 
um, when it comes to wonkiness. You're soaking in it. Um, but I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, I thought it was very, very interesting. I, um, uh, I was just saying to Adam and Guy, who were um, looking at me crosswise, that um, I'm not entirely satisfied with the international comparison point, as, which I think I sort of made obvious to people. Um, I'm sure he's got deeper answers and all that kind of stuff, and there's not a criticism. I just think that there's there have to be more complex reasons for, you know, and I, I think they probably have a lot to do with American exceptionalism for why we're kind of an outlier, at least seem to be an outlier on these issues. You know, I was recently in Istanbul and Turkey has taken in millions of displaced refugees in the last few years from Syria and other places. Um, this was before the earthquake. And well, obviously there were homeless people to be seen in Istanbul. Um, it was much less of a problem than in, in New York or LA and, or, in, um, in a lot of other places. And, uh, and so I think the cultural, I mean, I think Stephen makes a very good point about how it's a cu culturally complex question. I just, uh, I feel like I wanted to pull more threads on that part, but, um, I'm really glad I got to ask the question about whether you should give people beggars money. Um, um, I don't know if beggar is still allowed as a term these days. Um, maybe it's just sort of a retail economic redistributionists. Um, but we'll come to that again another time. Um, it's good to be back. Thank you very much to, uh, Sarah and, uh, Chris for, uh, subbing for me while I was gone. I apologize. I couldn't get a solo remnant done. Uh, just the nature of how I was, um, vacationing was just, it was just not doable, but I'm back. And, um, uh, and I have, I feel oddly refreshed, um, which is new for me and, um, more to talk about, about all sorts of things anon, but for now, I'll just see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Jonah.